The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, it is uh, good to be back with y'all this weekend. Uh, for those who don't know, I was, I was gone last weekend. I was actually in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, had a, a speaking gig out there. I've never been there before. They had great barbecue. It's not Texas, but it was pretty good. And uh, so it was, it was good to be out there. And, and Dr. Jake Humans was here, and, and he uh, filled in for me. And he spoke on Solomon, uh, a.k.a. he called him the, the most interesting man in the world. Uh, so if you're curious about that and have no idea what I'm talking about, I encourage you to get on our podcast, download it. It was a really, really great message. I got to, to listen to it this week. Um, and, and if you do get a chance to do that, it'll also help you keep in continuity with our series. We're, we're in the story where this whole year we're going through the entire narrative of salvation uh, that we see in the Bible. And so until summer, from basically from January till summer, we're going through the Old Testament. And in the fall, we'll be going through the New Testament. We're going to do some crazy things in the summer, but, but this is what we'll be doing now. And so we're continuing on in the story uh, of the Old Testament. We're looking at the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And last week, Solomon was the last king of a united Israel. And if you've been reading along with us, what happens is, as his reign comes to an end, he falls into idolatry. And because of that, God says, bro, you're not going to have the entire nation in your line anymore. Like, any king that comes from you is no longer going to rule over the entire country. And he says, in fact, what's going to happen is I'm going to raise up this guy, Jeroboam. And he's going to end up uh, leading most of the tribes as their king. And your son, Rehoboam, is only going to get two of the tribes. That's it. And so that's kind of what happens before our text for today. Now, I say that, and I feel like our gut reaction as people is to be like, okay. Like, how exactly does the, the geopolitical situation of the ancient Near East really affect us today? Right? It's a, little, it's a bit of a stretch for us to do. Now, this is what we see, though. What we see in our text, what we see in the division of God's people, the division of Israel, is how incredibly powerful moments of suffering and success are to us as people. In this text, we see that both prosperity and adversity are incredibly formative as we seek to grow as individuals. Here's what I mean. Uh, So this past week, I, I heard an interview of a guy who was uh, sharing the, the first time he ever went to an English Premier League soccer match. And he said he's, he's 10 years old when he went, and he went to see Arsenal versus Liverpool, which are two of the, the top uh, teams in, in the Premier League. And he's there, and he's 10 years old, and he's watching, and he said, you know, it was fine, everything was going well. And then he said the weirdest thing happened. He said, Arsenal scored a goal. And he said, I heard the guy right behind me, right as the ball went in the net, I heard the man behind me go, take that, Gloria! And being a 10-year-old, he's like, what is that about, right? And so he turned around and he asked the guy, he said, what, why did you yell, take that Gloria? And, and the guy looked really embarrassed and, and kind of sheepish. And he said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, uh, Gloria is my ex-wife and, um, and, and she's a big Liverpool fan. And so it just felt really good when, when we scored against them. Now, what, what I love about that story is it just illustrates how powerful even the smallest moments of success can be on us. Or even the smallest moments of suffering can be on us, right? I mean, this guy's team scored a goal. He had nothing to do with that, right? And yet it somehow was tied into one of the deepest pains in his heart. And I imagine it would have been true the other way too, right? If Liverpool would have scored, he would have said, oh, curse you, Gloria, right? Like it's, it's just tied in together. See, moments of success and moments of suffering are incredibly powerful, and here's why. They reveal what's really going on in your heart. 
They reveal what's really going on in your heart. And what we see in our text for today is that when that happens, when you see what's really going on in your heart, it can actually be a very scary thing. It can be a very scary thing. And the only hope for growth from that is found in the gospel. That's what we see in our text, that suffering reveals our heart, success reveals our heart, growth comes in the gospel. Suffering reveals your heart, success reveals your heart, growth comes in the gospel. All right, let's go. Uh, so before we get into our text for today, uh, we, need to, we need to understand the story of Rehoboam, because in the story of Rehoboam, we actually see how suffering reveals his heart. So right before our text, I mentioned King Solomon dies. Now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is set in line to be the king, and, and he goes to the city, and, and the people show up, and he expects them to crown him as king and say, hey, you are Solomon's son, and so you're king, way to go. What ends up happening is the people show up, and they say, hey, Rehoboam, here's the deal. And they show up under the leadership of Jeroboam. All right, you guys keep those straight. We're good. Okay. They show up under the leadership of Jeroboam and they say, hey, here's the deal. Your dad, Solomon, man, he put a heavy yoke on us. He worked us too hard. He taxed us too hard. Listen, if if you're going to do that, we're out. But if you lighten the load just a little bit, man, if you lighten the load a little bit, we'll be so happy to serve you. We'll call you king. We'll live under your rule. You just got to lighten the load a little bit. So Rehoboam says, all right, give me a couple days to think about it. And he goes and he talks to the elders that had advised his father. And the elders say, yeah, man, you should listen to the people. You really should. You serve them and they're going to serve you. It'll work out a lot better for you. And Rehoboam says, no, I don't like that. And so he goes and he he talks to his boys. And uh, and his boys say, dude, come on. Come on. They insulted you by asking you that. You're the king, the nerve of those people. No, no, no. You tell them it's going to be ten times harder under you. And so Rehoboam, being the genius that he is, uh, goes and tells the people, he says, you know what, you didn't like my dad? You're going to hate me. You thought it was tough under my dad? It's going to be way worse under me. And so after that brilliant leadership move, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel leave. They say, forget you, man. You're not our king then. They say, Jeroboam's our king, and we're going up north. And that's what they do. Now let's think about this for a second. Rehoboam is given an entire kingdom. And in one move, before he's even crowned king, he loses 80% of it. Over 80% of it, just like that. Right? So, so clearly he's in a rough patch. Right? He's, he's failing as a leader. And so when he encounters hardship, when things don't go his way, how does he respond? Well, we didn't read this, but I'll have it up on the screen. Verse 1221 shows us. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, the only folks he's got left, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now listen to this. By his own foolishness, he loses his kingdom. And when things go bad, his gut response here is to pull an army together and attack his, his, his nation to the north. Things don't go his way, and his gut response is civil war, brother against brother. That's what he wants to do. Now, fortunately, what happens in the text, the prophet steps in and says, bro, just knock it off. What are you doing? We are not going to go and kill our relatives. Just calm down. And fortunately, he does. But see, this little episode of Rehoboam's actually shows us a lot about the human condition. 
Shows a lot about the human condition. See, he goes through suffering, he goes through hardship and adversity, and it reveals his heart. And what did it show us about his heart? It shows that he was arrogant, he was vengeful, he was power hungry, he's a megalomaniac. What does hardship show about your heart? Hopefully not all those things, right? But hardship has this way of revealing truth about what's really going on inside of us. I heard a story from a, another pastor about a time he was, he was on an airplane, and, uh, and he's, he's flying, and, and some malfunction happened. I don't really know what it was, but, but apparently the plane started going for a dive, like, real quick. And so people, of course, freak out. And he said there's two groups of people on this plane. He said there is one group of people, you know, they're facing death, and there's one group of people that, that had this kind of a, amazing moment where they, they actually were relatively calm, started praying out loud, talking to Jesus, like it was, it was really cool. And then he said the other half of the plane just screamed the F word as loud as they could, right? And, which makes sense. And so, so he said, now, the, eventually, the plane leveled out, whatever was going on, it worked out, and, and they weren't, you know, going to die, and so it leveled out. And he said it was the funniest thing after that because, like, how do you have a conversation with the person like right next to you after that, right? Like, hey, I saw you when you were about to die. Couldn't help but notice you're part of the F-bomb crew. Uh, you know, like, like what's, what's the, what's, are you traveling for business or pleasure? Like, I, how, do you, how do you follow that up, right? Well, that's what I love about this story is, listen, any one of us can put up a nice front when things are normal, when things are going just fine. But when, when stuff hits the fan, when adversity and suffering enter into your lives, that's when your heart is really exposed. That's when what's going on in here comes out. And what does that hardship reveal about your heart? See, I've only been a pastor for a few years, but even in just these few years, I've had the opportunity to, to walk through some challenging times uh, with, with some of you here and, and some other folks uh, that, that aren't here. And every time, man, when people hit hard things, their true colors come out. Every time. I've seen a, a young mother of two face breast cancer with courage and graciousness and complete dependence on God. And I've seen people look simply at the hardship in other people's lives, not even in their own lives. They just see the hardship in someone else's life, and they completely abandon faith. They completely turn inward, cut themselves off from God and community. This happens. You see, if you really want to know where your heart is, look at how you respond in the midst of hardship. If you want a real heart check, look how you respond in the midst of hardship. You may have seen this uh, this past week. ESPN reporter Britt McHenry's car was towed in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, so she's a reporter for ESPN, and she went to retrieve her car at the towing company. And it's caught on the camera at the towing company, her just berating this lady who's working there, berating this lady who's working behind the counter. You can actually hear her say these things. I'm just going to read some of them to you. She says, I'm in the news, sweetheart. I will sue this place. She goes on, that's why I have a degree and you don't. I wouldn't work at a scumbag place like this. Makes my skin crawl even being here. Later she says, maybe if I was missing some teeth, they would hire me, huh? And then apparently the employee finally fires back and makes some comment about her roots of her hair color. And, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, but then Britt McHenry, the, the reporter from ESPN, sasses back and she says, oh, like yours, because they look so stunning. Because I'm on television and you're in a trailer, honey. Lose some weight, baby girl. And we can all be offended by this, and rightly so. 
and rightly so. But, but we know that this is what struggle does, right? The camera caught her, but would it catch you? Right? This is what struggle does when we face adversity, right? She's stressed out, her car got towed, she's upset, and so the emotions get the best of her. What happens to you in that situation? See, those thoughts and those judgments that we keep beneath the surface are so often exposed in the midst of adversity. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. There's a uh, final part at the end of the final book of the Lord of the Rings series where uh, the, the, little, the little hobbit Mary, Mariotic Brandybuck, is, is hurt uh, from a battle, and he's in the halls of healing. And, and the king walks over to him, and he sees this battered little hobbit, and he just puts his hand on him, and he says this, this suffering will not darken his heart, but will bring him wisdom. See, that's the option when you face suffering. It can either lead to a, a darkened heart, a closed-off person, or it can bring you wisdom. And I love that because the reality is suffering is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You know, I've been alive for, like, my son Titus is too. He knows suffering is unavoidable, right? He's homesick right now, okay? But it will expose your heart. And in that moment, you can either allow your heart to darken or you can let it grow through the experience. And someone says, okay, Gabe, how do I do that? How do I do that? We'll get there, all right? But first, let's examine how success exposes your heart. Now, we don't see this in our text, but, but prior to the text we read today, uh, Jeroboam, the guy who receives 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, basically becomes king of the northern part of Israel. Uh, prior to this, he's been in exile. He's been in exile in Egypt. He's been exiled from his home country. And when he returns to his home country, he's no longer in exile, but he's ruling it. That's a dramatic shift in his life. Now, how does success expose his heart? Look with me at verses 26 through 28 of chapter 12, if you have it open. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. All right, so what happens here? Jeroboam is named king. He becomes king by popular demand. Right? Like, like he's well-liked. He's the most popular guy in his entire country. He becomes king of his entire country. He's got anything he could ever want. And what does all that success reveal about his heart? That he is remarkably insecure. Right? Like, Two minutes into his reign, ten verses into his reign, he gets nervous. He says, okay, I might be king in the north right now, but I'm no Rob Stark. Anyone? All right, good. Pagan shouldn't watch that show. All right, uh, and, and uh, I'm kidding. Uh, and and, and, and uh, for those of you who didn't get it, just ignore. We're moving on. Uh, and, and he says, I, I may be king in the north, but these people are going to have to travel south to Jerusalem to the temple. They're going to have to travel there to worship God. And if they do that, Jeroboam's read as Karl Marx. He knows religion is the opiate of the masses. He says, if they do that, they're going to come back up here and they're going to kill me. He says, so you know what? I'm just going to set up two gods, set up two temples here in the north to two false gods and tell the people to worship them. And so that's what he does. No one needs to go to Jerusalem anymore. You guys just worship here. Worship these golden cows. That's what he does. 
Now, what's the deal with that? Right? Like, almost the entire country leaves the son of the previous king to support Jeroboam. And the second he's got everything he could want, he freaks out. He thinks they're all going to kill him. And so he starts making really bad decisions. Why is that? Because success reveals what's in your heart. Success reveals what's in your heart. And you guys know this. You know this, right? Have you, have you, have you ever met someone or seen someone who excelled at one thing? Right? Like they were just really good at this one thing. And because they were really good at this one thing, that made them think they were an expert on everything. Have you ever met that person? Right? They're called college professors, right? Um, I'm kidding, for those of you that are. Um, uh, but, but I do remember, man, I, I, I had professors in school, right? I had this one guy, he's a brilliant archaeologist, right? He knows uh, of, of the ancient Near East. He knows more dead languages than you know even exist, right? He's a brilliant man in a very specific field, worked with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he would regularly insult the administration of the institution he was working for because he knew better how to run things than they did. You know, they may have MBAs and years in higher education administration, ah, but he had a PhD in Aramaic, right? That's going to make you more qualified. But this is what success does, right? It exposes our cravings to be admired, to be respected, to be well thought of, to be loved. And the more we taste of it, the more we want it. And why is that? Why is that longing inside of us? Well, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Timothy Keller uh, references an article written by a lady named Cynthia Himmel, who's a, a journalist for the Village Voice in New York City. And it's an article from a few years ago, but she had, worked, she, uh, had lived in the village in New York and, and seen a lot of people go from uh, not being famous to being famous. She'd seen celebrities rise and fall. And, uh, and she had this to say. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand, and Sylvester Stallone were once perfectly pleasant human beings, and now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now, she's right. She's right. Not about God giggling at poor circumstances, okay? But she's saying what the Bible says in Romans 1. That, that the worst thing God can do is give you the desires of your heart. Because here's what she's saying. Very few of us actually make it to be the most successful thing that we thought we would be. Right? Very few of us reach the pinnacle in whatever it is you're aiming for. It just rarely happens. But those that do, in this case celebrities, those that make it to their pinnacle, they find themselves appalled at what they see. Why? Because they're still not happy. They're still not fulfilled. And someone says, oh, Gabe, that's just celebrities. Like, anyone can throw pot shots at them, right? No, 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 no. This is an illustration of the human condition. 
You see, there's, there's something wrong with the human soul. There's something wrong with humanity, with you and me, that even when we achieve our greatest success, when you've got that career you've wanted, when you've got that family you've wanted, when you've got that spouse that you've wanted, when you've got the education you've wanted, whatever it is for you, when we achieve that, it's not enough. We want more. So I've been uh, inhaling David Foster Wallace books lately. And in one of his uh, nonfiction essays, he, he writes about his experience on a, a luxury cruise ship. And, and for this, this whole essay, he writes about just like how extravagant this cruise is. And he's just like, and he just sort of laughs at it. He's just like, this is just silly. I mean, like, there's too much food and there's mints on my pillow and the staff are too accommodating and the pampering is just, it's just outrageous. And he just sort of mocks it the whole time. But then he writes about this one moment where he's on the deck of his cruise ship. And he looks over and he sees another cruise ship. And it's called the Dream Ward. And he notices that this cruise ship is nicer than his. And it's got private balconies for each room. It's got more pools than his cruise ship. It's, it's cleaner than his is. And he writes this. I start to feel a covetous and almost prurient envy of the Dream Ward. I imagine its interior to be cleaner to ours, larger, more lavishly appointed. I imagine the Dream Ward's food being even more varied and punctiliously prepared. The ship's gift shop less expensive, and its casino less depressing, (laughs) and its stage entertainment less cheesy, and its pillow mints bigger. And he goes on and on about how certain he is that everything is better in the dream ward, and how he starts to hate this luxury cruise ship that he's on. Oh, it's just second rate. This just stinks. This thing is no good. It's not up to par. And then he says this. I love this line. I'll have it up here. It says, the source of of all the dissatisfaction is not my ship at all, but rather the plain old humanly conscious me, or more precisely, the ur-American part of me that craves and responds to pampering and passive pleasure, the dissatisfied infant part of me, the part that always and indiscriminately wants. David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian as far as I know, says, I see in myself this part of me that always wants more. It's always saying no matter how well things are going for me, they can always get better. And why is that? Why is there this vacuum in the human soul that says something has got to fill, something has got to give me fulfillment, there's there's not enough. Why is that there? And why does nothing satisfy it? Because that longing is God-sized. And only God can satisfy that longing. See, you know what's revealed about your heart in suffering. You do. You know what's revealed about your heart in success. I'm not speaking anything that's earth-shattering this morning. Right? I'm just kind of making obvious what we all kind of internally know, how we know our thoughts work. But how do we change that? How do we change that? How do we change it so when our hearts are revealed, it's not darkness that oozes out? How does that change? The gospel. The gospel. Look at chapter 13 of our text. All right, so Jeroboam has set up these false gods. And he says, hey, you guys worship these false gods. And then it says, a man of God from Judah, man of God from Judah, comes up to Jeroboam and says, hey, you got to tear those things down. I'll think about this for a second. This is a man of God, which means he's representing the true God, which means he's standing in opposition to Jeroboam's false gods. On top of that, he's from Judah, the only tribe that didn't say, yeah, we'll follow you as king. 
right? So he's from a rebellious faction and honors a different God than Jeroboam. And so he's facing a tremendous amount of adversity. He's facing a tremendous amount of potential suffering. And yet he goes in fearless. He goes in confident. Why is that? How does he do that? No fear, no trepidation. How does he face that struggle with such strength? Look at the start of 13 verse 2. This man of God comes up, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. How does he do that? How does he face the adversity with such strength, with such confidence? His confidence and strength comes from the Lord, right? He knows God. So no matter what he's facing, He's not disparaging. He's not destroyed because he's rooted in his relationship with the creator of the universe. What can face him? What could hurt him? He's rock solid in his relationship with God. And see, the same is true for you. If you want to face hardship, you want to face struggle, you want to face adversity and come out having grown as a person, come out on top, you've got to do it rooted in your relationship with God. One of my favorite quotes by the theologian N.T. Wright says this, spiritual maturity is when your convictions and beliefs trump your thoughts and feelings. And see, the only way that happens, the only way you get to that point, is if the gospel sinks deep in your life. If you speak the gospel into every area of your life, that's how it works. And you say, Gabe, what does that mean? What does that mean to, to speak the gospel into every area of my life? Here's what that looks like. It means that no matter what's going on in your life, you know you are loved and accepted and valued by God, not by what you do or don't do, but purely because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And you speak that into your life no matter what's going on. And so when things are are going bad, when they're they're falling apart all around you, you say to yourself, things are tough right now, but I'm not abandoned by God. That couldn't happen. That could not happen. He loves me so much that he sent his son to the cross for me. Oh yeah, things things are really hard right now. But God loves me so much that he sent Jesus for me. My heart can't get darkened and bitter. I have a Savior who joyfully gave of his life for me. Oh, things are bad, but but this isn't the end of the story. Jesus faced the worst this world had to offer, and he came out on top. That's my hope as I trust in him. You see, you speak the gospel into every area of your life. Do you see how that works? That in the midst of suffering, you speak that truth, you let it sink deep into the center of who you are. But you also speak the gospel in your life in the midst of success. Look at the man of God in, in chapter 13. He tells the king, he says, hey, this altar is going to get knocked down. It's going to get destroyed. The king, of course, gets ticked off and says, hey, seize him, right? And what happens when the king says that is it says his hand shrivels, which is super weird. Uh, and, but uh, that's what happens. And, uh, and, and the king says, hey, can you help me out? So the same guy that he tried to seize, he says, hey, can you hook a brother up? And, and oddly enough, the man of God says, sure. He prays to God and the, man's, and the king's hand is healed. The king sees the, the power of God and says, all right, let's tear down these altars. And so he does. And then, and then the king says, hey, let me give you a reward for helping me out. Why don't you come back to my place? Let me give you a present up to half my kingdom. 
up to half my kingdom. Now look at how the man of God responds to success. Verses 8 and 9. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord. He says, hey, you can give me up to half your kingdom. I'm still not taking it. Why does he do that? He says, because it's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about doing what he said. You see, in this moment, this man of God has every right to just rub it in the face of this king. He's got every right to get wealth and riches beyond his imagination, set his family up for success for a very long time. And he turns it all away. Why? Because his priority is not his own gain. His priority is his standing before God. The same is true for you. You see, it's true. The gospel does say you are more loved, you are more cared for, you are more cherished than you could ever possibly imagine. But at the same time, the gospel says you are more broken, you are more sinful, you are more dead before God than you have any idea. And your only hope was that Jesus had to go to the cross for you. That no matter how good you are, no matter what you've done, apart from the incredible work of Jesus on the cross, you are nothing before God. What God's grace in Jesus says that you aren't good enough to earn God's favor. And see, if that sinks into your heart, if that's really true for you, if that's at the center of your being, how could success make you insufferable? It can't. Because no matter how well things are going, no matter what goals you accomplish, no matter how many accolades the world throws at you, the reality remains you are still a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us, right? And that keeps you humble. We need that. Keeps you humble. As we close, I know this message has, has been a bit more teachy than, than preachy, a uh, little bit different style for me, but do you see how this works, right? That, that suffering and success reveal your heart. And the only way you grow, the only way you navigate them well is to apply the gospel in the midst of them is to apply the gospel in your life in the midst of them. These two truths, that I'm so broken, I'm so sinful, I'm such a mess, that Jesus had to go to the cross for me. That's what it took to save me. And at the same time, I am so loved and so cherished and so valued by God that Jesus chose to go for me. You hold both of those in your heart, and when that sinks into the center of your being, man, you are buoyant through whatever life will throw at you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. We look at this, this story, this crazy thing that went on with, with your people thousands of years ago. And yet so much remains true of who we are, of our struggles. As we face hardship, we're tempted to, to darken our hearts, to turn from you. As we face success, we're tempted to inflate our egos. God, I pray your gospel would sink deep into our lives. That we'd see in Jesus that, that he had to go to the cross for us, but we'd see in Jesus a Savior who loved us so much that he chose to do it. Lord, may that have a, an effect on who we are. 
May that not just be a truth we ascribe to, but may it be a truth that is deep in our soul that helps us navigate this world. I pray this for all my friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.